Welcome to episode 32. Today we'll be covering Emperor Augustus and we had an interview with Dr. Adrian Goldsworthy. I'm very excited about this episode because personally I always enjoy ancient Rome and I started off the podcast with three-part series on ancient Rome. So I was very happy to kind of get back to ancient history because I think it's always fascinating because again, we can draw a lot of parallels between history and what's going on now. And I think ancient Rome is one of those sort of unique civilizations or a unique time period where you can draw on so many different aspects from economic stuff to cultural to military. So by focusing on Emperor Augustus, he's one of those ancient figures that plays a critical role, not just in ancient Rome, but really in Western history, sort of influence that he had on sort of building what a lot of people sort of remember about the Roman Empire and the Roman period by not necessarily abolishing the Republic, but sort of creating the imperial system that many people associate with ancient Rome. And the interview, Dr. Goldsworthy, who's written tons of books on Augustus and Caesar and Cleopatra and the Roman military and the Roman economy. So he's one of those, in my opinion, one of the leading historians of ancient Rome. So they have the opportunity to interview him is fantastic. And I won't talk too much more. We'll get right into the interview, which will focus on Octavian or as most people know, Emperor Augustus. So hope you enjoy the interview. On today's episode, we welcome on Dr. Adrian Goldsworthy. He's a leading historian of the ancient world and author of acclaimed biographies of Julius Caesar, Augustus, and Cleopatra. Some of his other work includes In the Name of Rome, Pax Romana, and Philip and Alexander, Kings and Conquerors. So welcome on. Thank you for inviting me. And to begin, what is your favorite subject of history to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how did you become interested in ancient Rome? It's difficult. I mean, most history fascinates me. And if you're traveling and you visit somewhere and you think, oh, that's where that happened, I can end up reading all sorts of things about that. So I'm easily distracted. I've always liked the Romans because growing up in Britain, there's the remains of a Roman legionary fortress, an amphitheater about 20 miles away from where I grew up. So I was always pestering my parents saying that when you can climb over the walls and the remains, it makes it a bit more immediate than, say, Egyptian history or Greek history or anything like that. So it's it's a mixture of that. It's it's watching the old epic movies on TV and just there was there's something about the Romans that that's fascinating. So um, I just keep coming back there. But again, as I say, I easily get distracted and I just I just find history and people's stories fascinating. And what are some of the challenges that you've encountered while you know researching ancient history and writing about it? Ancient histories presents a different problem in that I, as a student, I did a degree in both ancient and modern history, and there was a just a very distinct way of teaching the subject, because the more modern you get, the more greater the sources are. When you start talking about the ancient world, there's always a limited amount of evidence that survives and huge gaps, lots of things we simply don't know. Now, in one sense, the limited sources are good because it means even as a student, you can read all the evidence we've got on a topic or on a person. But then the problem is when you come to study it more, it's frustrating as to how much you don't know. And this varies from the big events. We don't know exactly which year Julius Caesar was born, probably 100 BC, but no ancient source actually tells us that. To the day-to-day things of how things worked, how people organized things, how a political system worked, how an army worked, there's lots that our sources assume everybody understood. 
So they never bother to tell us about it, unless you get, almost accidentally, they'll tell you as an aside in a little anecdote about something, oh, and by the way, that's what they always do. So it's quite frustrating. There's a lot in even quite recent history that's simply been forgotten because nobody at the time bothered to write it down. But with the ancient world, because you're dealing with different societies, different attitudes, there's just so much more. You've got to guess at what would have seemed the logical thing for them to do. But in a sense, the mystery is part of the attraction as well, is that you can't have a final answer on a lot of these issues and about a lot of these people. And the kind of follow-up on sources, how do you, in your writing, kind of approach trying to deal with that challenge of sourcing, whether it's with the gaps or with the language barrier or trying to sort of reconstruct some of these kind of day-to-day challenges? As, as far as possible, I try to be honest with the reader and, and explain to them how we know things or how we think we know things and what we don't know. So I like to think of it as, as history, but it's like a building, but where you've left the scaffolding on to show how you got there, where you show your workings out, as it were. And it's always better. There's a great danger, particularly when you write a biography of somebody like Caesar or Cleopatra or Alexander the Great. These are big personalities. And if you spend years of your life studying these people, you get a sense that you know them. And to some extent you do, you've looked at whatever you've got, but there is a great danger that then you create in your mind a sort of mental image of what this person was like. And then whenever there's a gap in the sources, you think, well, this is what Caesar would have done, or this is what Augustus would have done. Rather than saying simply, we don't know, this is what seems to happen, but there are all sorts of possibilities. Suggesting a possibility, this is maybe what he was thinking, what they were planning on doing, is fine as long as you make it clear that that's what it is, conjecture. So it's trying to be honest, There's a temptation, particularly if you're writing for a sort of general audience, to fill in the gaps yourself, make it up and present your guesswork as facts. And I think that's a mistake. I'd far prefer the reader to make up his or her own mind rather than be told by me what to think. And to get into Augustus or Octavian, as he was known, which we'll be talking about today, to begin, what kind of best describes Octavian's childhood and his upbringing? We know a little bit about this in a way that we don't with most people from the ancient world. You know, when someone in the ancient world has a biography written about them, very often it pretty much says they're born, they, you know, this was their father, this was their mother. And then at the age of 18 or at the age of 20, they started doing things. The ancients weren't really interested in childhood as a guide to somebody's personality and character. So you get these stories, the big danger is that because this man went on to become Caesar Augustus, the first emperor, did all these great things, that as with Alexander the Great and with others, the stories are invented later on because, hey, he must have been an incredible child. There must have been all these signs, these these omens that he was going to be great, he was going to be successful. So the story that as a baby he goes missing and they find that he's climbed up to the top of the house and is sort of staring out of the window at the sunrise, this sort of thing, Okay, maybe it happens. These things do sometimes happen in the best regulated families, but could just be made up because that's the sort of thing that should happen. As far as we can tell, his upbringing was fairly normal for a Roman aristocrat in that he'd be educated at home. He'd be brought up to speak Greek as well as Latin. And that apart from the formal education, which might be by tutors, but sometimes there'd be friends or family connections. So there'd be a class group of a few boys learning together, because beyond a certain age, girls start having a different education to boys. The Romans also put great store in learning by seeing other people do things. 
So once you get into your teens, you're starting to follow around members of your family as they go about their daily business as senators. So you sit outside the open doors of the Senate meeting and listen to the debates. You see them greeting their clients, their friends. You see them canvassing for others. So there's a lot. The Romans are not, you know, the modern world is very much you you go to law school and you learn to do that. You go to whatever it is, you do specific training. The Romans were far more general, but also followed by other people's examples. And they extend that even into formal education in that when they're reading histories or they're reading about past events, it's the example, you know, what did this person do that was good, that was admirable, that was correct, that was clever, and what conversely did they do that was bad, that was contemptible. So there's that sense of example. I mean, it's a very personal, very aristocratic way of thinking, but that's, as far as we can tell, the evidence is that's the sort of upbringing Augustus has, as does nearly everybody else. His, however, is cut short in that normally he would have gone on and in later life, he's reluctant to make speeches in Greek because he doesn't feel his Greek is sufficiently polished in the way that Caesar or Cicero would have gone off for several years of study in the Greek East, in the Eastern Mediterranean, to learn oratory and rhetoric and all these things and just hone their skills, which was something only the very rich could afford to do. So it was a mark of the sort of perfect education. He doesn't get that because he throws himself into politics and public life much earlier. And how did Augustus come under the mentorship of Julius Caesar? It's largely a coincidence. Augustus's father dies when he's very young and is having a promising career, but dies before he can become consul, before he can get to the top. He's come from a family that's got plenty of money, but doesn't have a long established family tradition. They haven't been in politics for a long time but has married into the connections of Julius Caesar. So Julius Caesar is his great uncle. And there are a few male relatives that Caesar looks at, the sort of next generation where he's clearly looking around. He doesn't have any legitimate children of his own. There are rumors about illegitimate children, whether with Cleopatra, but also elsewhere in Gaul. But he doesn't, with the wife to whom he's married the longest, Calpurnia, he doesn't have a child at all. And you know, in Shakespeare, that's because Calpurnia is barren and all this sort of thing. But it, it's probably more to do with Caesar spending 10 years in Gaul and not seeing it for 10 years reduces the, the possibilities of such things. So Caesar is looking like any Roman aristocrat for the family line, not necessarily for a clear heir, but for some sense of taking the family name onwards. He starts to favour the young Octavius as he is then, clearly sees something in him. But you've got to remember he is very young. At this stage, and Caesar doesn't spend a lot of time in Rome to spend much time with him. So the connection becomes more important because of Caesar's assassination and what happens afterwards. At this early stage, there was at least one other relative that he might have favoured. He starts to give him a few prestigious posts at an early age, but beyond that, it's more to do with what's in Caesar's will. And obviously, Caesar didn't anticipate dying at that stage. So the will might have changed, his ideas might have changed. But in fact, things work out because Caesar stabbed to death on the Ides of March. And generally, what did this sort of mentorship entail? Was it simply, you know, given opportunities to receive education? Or, you know, were there other things such as participating in Caesar's campaigns? Really, what did this entail? You've got to remember he's very young. He's only 13 when the Civil War begins. So he's really too young to have an active role. He doesn't go to Caesar in Gaul. It wasn't normal for people as young as that. People who are in their late teens might well go with a relative. You know, Cicero takes his son and his nephew with him when he goes out to govern Cilicia, takes them on campaign. But this didn't happen with Octavius. He's simply too young. 
later in the civil war, Caesar wants him to come on the, the last campaign in 45 BC in Spain, but because of illness, he doesn't get there in time. So he never sees Caesar lead an army or plan a campaign. The other thing everybody tends to forget when they talk about Julius Caesar's plans and Julius Caesar's ideas is that because of the civil war, he spends very little time in Italy or Rome in those last few years of his life. So he doesn't see very much directly of the young Octavius. There are letters, there's communications that way, there's the family connection and the promotion. It's Octavius who gets to read the oration at Julia's funeral, the Caesar's sister when she dies. So that's a prestigious thing. It brings him into the public eye. These aristocratic funerals were very big affairs for the Romans. And that Caesar's behind this, Caesar's connected, it's all part of it, but it's quite limited. Caesar is more of a distant presence and he's sort of setting the standard for what can be achieved, raising the bar higher for what you might do. But it's still quite loose. It's only at the very end where he is sent to Greece to further his education, but also prepare to accompany Caesar on the big war he plans with Parthia and the Balkans first, which is about to set off to leave this when he gets murdered. So that's why Octavius isn't in Rome when Julius Caesar's murdered. But it's a sign that Caesar was clearly looking in some way to train this boy to see how it went. But again, bear in mind, Caesar's only 56. Yes, there are health issues, but there doesn't seem any clear sign he was going to expecting to die anytime soon. All of this could change. And Octavius has these, particularly in his early life, pretty frequent spells of very poor health where it's expected that he might die. So again, you wouldn't necessarily put your money on him being around, on him outliving Caesar, even at that stage, even with their comparative age. And to kind of follow up, do sources tell us a lot about what impact the assassination of Caesar had on Augustus? Not in a personal sense of these were his emotions, other than the assumption, well, this is someone who's a relative who's been very good to you and has been murdered by people that he treated very well. The striking thing is, of course, that he returns from Greece, crosses back to Italy, and then goes to Rome. By this time, Caesar's will has been revealed. Octavius is the principal heir. That means he gets the bulk of the money, he gets the bulk of the connections, the obligations to people who are clients of Caesar, this sort of thing. But Caesar can't bequeath any of his powers. Roman law doesn't work that way. Roman society doesn't work that way. He hasn't actually adopted him as son. It was quite common in a will that if you were the main legatee, you took the person's name, which is what he does. So he assumes the name of Caesar straight away and from then on uses it. And it is only his opponents who call him Octavian or Octavianus, which emphasizes that he's just an adopted son. But he claims that this is not just I'm the main heir, I am the son, I am not simply Caesar's money, but Caesar's position. He goes and publicly states this, that he expects to succeed to all of Caesar's powers, Caesar's position, Caesar's prestige. Now, for somebody who's a couple of weeks short of their 19th birthday, has no real record of any sort of achievements in a society where age is vital to political office, you know, you can't be consul until you're 42. This is staggering and unprecedented. The closest that you get is Pompey in the previous civil war with Sulla and Marius, where, again, as a youngster, he, from his family estates, raises his own army. And once he's got an army, makes himself important. But this is, he's got more backing. His father is still alive at the start, whereas the Octavius, or the young Caesar, as he's now called, is just assuming that he can take over Caesar's supporters and makes a pretty good job of doing it. But 
it's easy for us because with hindsight, this happened to think this is all quite natural. People just didn't expect it. You can tell from Cicero's letters, you can tell from everybody's reactions. Nobody really thought this kid mattered. He's going to talk big. He's going to make a bit of a fuss. But in the end, who cares? He doesn't seem to have any talent. He hasn't done anything. Why should anybody follow him or fight for him? And was Augustus able to kind of use the money and the influence that came with being Caesar's heir to kind of build political influence, to build an army? How was he able to navigate that? I mean, he's dismissed as a boy who owes everything to a name. And the name of Caesar was so powerful because of all that he'd achieved, but also because he's got this army of veteran soldiers. They've been discharged, but this is a Roman army where people as a rule are not yet serving for sort of 25 years. These are quite young men. And you've also got other people from their communities throughout Italy. Caesar's been giving land to his soldiers. There's an awful lot of people out there who are outraged by Caesar's murder and have no reason to believe in the liberty that Brutus and Cassius proclaim, because it's largely liberty for the aristocratic elite to to run things and benefit from that. And they rally to him. Now, some of this is the name. Some of this is that a few powerful backers of Caesar who were not necessarily from the leading aristocratic families, but were financiers, were good organizers, were good planners, they back him. It doesn't always work. The first attempt where he forms his little private army or following and marches on Rome and then announces he's going to do all these things, it's a damp squib. Nearly everybody deserts him because there isn't a crowd rushing up saying, wow, yeah, great, it's a new Caesar, we want you. However, he then goes back, recruits more and starts to raise an army and an army consisting of quite a lot of experienced soldiers, even more experienced officers. So you can train the recruits you're getting at a time when The civil war is building up between factions in the Senate and Mark Antony, and there is a great shortage of capable trained soldiers in Italy. And the thought that you can use, they don't want Caesar's veterans to go and rally to Antony in big numbers, because that will make Antony dangerous. But Antony is, he's been Caesar's colleague as consul. He's from one of the big families in his own right, not through any will or adoption. And he's older. He's old enough to be taken seriously and to scare people. So Cicero and others, you have the famous comment from Cicero, you know, Landandum, Adulescum, Monandum, Tolendum, we must praise this young man, decorate him and discard him. They think that the young Caesar will be easy to ditch. Use him, use his name, use his soldiers, but he's just a kid, he doesn't matter. And he is able to negotiate this and make himself important because he's got an army, but then use that army carefully and realize that since everyone is planning to discard him, It's a pretty dumb thing on Cicero's part to have said this publicly and have it reported that this is what you're planning to do. It doesn't inspire confidence. He's able to switch side. He does the deal with Antony, with Lepidus. You get the triumvirate formed and they turn on the senatorial faction opposed to Antony and take over Rome and you have the prescriptions and all of this. So he's doing this. And again, it's probably worth remembering that people like Antony and Lepidus couldn't quite take him seriously either because he was just too young. And he didn't have any military reputation. And there are even, you know, stories that he runs away in the early battles and that he's going and hiding in a swamp and all this sort of thing. And he doesn't seem healthy and he doesn't seem particularly good at anything. So they just don't think that this is someone in the long run who's going to last the course. And the kind of follow up when the senatorial faction and Octavian and his allies kind of come into conflict, was this his first experience sort of trying to lead an army and navigate Roman politics? And did he see these kind of alliances as a means to an end? Oh, quite clearly. I mean, he's just as cynical as everybody else. And 
as it turns out, a lot smarter, though nobody realizes this for a long time. And again, when you think this is a time when most of us would just be at college and starting out and pretty, to have the confidence to do all of these things when he doesn't have any experience and he hasn't seen this done and nobody's really done this before, it is quite staggering. But one thing he seems to pick up on from quite early is that he doesn't actually have to be good at everything, like leading an army, as long as he can find someone he trusts who is good. And then he rewards them. But you start to have this partnership with Agrippa, who will you know, eventually become his son-in-law, but is around about the same age, with others where he finds capable people and he gets a good team. But there's never any question he's Caesar's heir. He's the Caesar. So the fact that he's the son of the divine Julius, because by this time you know, Julius Caesar has been declared a god, means that particularly as he tends to recruit people from the less famous families, he's always going to be the chief, he's always going to be in charge, but he can use talented people to do what they do best and not have to be good at everything himself. So there's, which again is a rare skill that you realize that particularly in this sort of society, actually I'm not good at this, but if I know somebody who is and I trust them, then they do well, but I do even better. And again, one of the big myths is that he's up against eventually Antony, who's supposed to be the famous general, but that's largely a fabricated image of being a great commander. Antony isn't very experienced either, nor are Brutus and Cassius. Everybody else around there is making it up as they go along. The really big names in military command, the Pompeys, the Julius they're all dead. So you've got lots of inexperienced commanders, quite inexperienced armies. So it's in a sense, a lot of it's like the American Civil War. Everybody's learning as they go along. So everyone's making loads of mistakes. And if you can just be a bit better, you start to get on a roll and you get that confidence and then it's easier and easier to win. And who were some of these kind of confidants that Octavius relied on, whether it was leading his armies or mentoring him? How did he go about sort of recruiting these people and building this kind of team, as you described? It's a little hard to tell. I mean, some of them are clearly people of about his age that may have been educated with him, certainly are in those latter stages. The two most famous will be Agrippa, who's the great commander, the great organizer, the man who just gets jobs done, very practical, very bluff, and never wants the credit for it. He even turns down triumphs later in Augustus's reign because he doesn't need to prove anything. He's won enough victories. He doesn't need to show off. And then Mycenas, who's more the political operator, who's the patron of poets like Horace and Virgil. So in due course, we'll bring in all these incredibly talented artists to help celebrate all the achievement of Augustus. But they do just seem to be personal friends. Now, again, that's a very Roman way of doing things. You know, this is how an aristocrat tends to work and think, get your friends, get your family. Later on, as he gets older, Augustus will make more and more use of family members for nearly every key job throughout his reign. And they command his armies and they govern the provinces and they look after Rome while he's away and then he looks after Rome while they're away and this sort of thing. You know, Agrippa will go right the way through until his death, slogging for Augustus and then subsequently Tiberius and Drusus, his stepsons and grandsons later on, will start doing all these jobs. So it's a very personal thing and it partly works because you have someone whose position is unassailable, but who is good at making friends and is good at working with people. After defeating the original plotters against Caesar, Brucius, uh, and Cassius, how quickly did Antony and Lepidus and Octavian come in the conflict, and what was the outcome of that conflict? It's fairly rapid. I mean, there's always a great difficulty when you start dividing up the Roman world. 
the Roman system is supposed to, the Roman Republic, stop any one individual, any one group getting supreme permanent power. But the civil war means all that breaks down. And it's very hard for Romans to share power, particularly as Antony doesn't take the young Octavius seriously. Lepidus feels that he's being overshadowed by the others. Again, he comes from a more important family and he's older and they still can't quite take this kid seriously. And there is a danger we see the young Octavian, the young Caesar as the sensible, shrewd politician he'll become. I mean, he does some very weird stuff in those early years when he's in Italy that, for instance, he makes uh, Livia's husband divorce her. And then after she's given birth, she's pregnant at the time, a few days within, she's given birth to Drusus, her second son, then he marries her and they all have a feast where they dress up as gods and goddesses at a time when there's a food shortage in Rome. So these very, but you have to remember these people in their early 20s who've had staggering success. You know, they've challenged the world and they've won. So expecting them to behave in a restrained way is like expecting the pop star or the sports star who suddenly at the age of 21 is a multi-billionaire or something and can do whatever they like. And everyone around them is telling them they're wonderful. So he makes mistakes. He does crass things. He's not always popular. There are riots. There are problems. But he learns from his mistakes. And he doesn't make them twice. And he starts to improve things. You have the breakup. I mean, there's tension with Mark Antony. There's tension because Antony's brother and his wife lead a rebellion in Italy. It's not quite clear to what extent Antony himself is involved, but it's against Octavian who will defeat it. Then you patch that up with the marriage between his sister Octavia with Mark Antony. That works for a while, but then you have all the business with Cleopatra and this sort of thing. Ultimately, it's hard to see. These don't seem to be men who are likely to cooperate. And Octavian is left back there in Italy, which is the harder job in a sense, because you've got to settle all these veteran soldiers, which means taking land, farmland from other people to give to your followers isn't going to be popular. That's the, the issue that's exploited in the rebellion by Lucius Antonius against him. But also the thought that this is the minefield where things are going to go wrong and you're going to get unpopular and you will mess up. Whereas Antony can go off and plans this great campaign against the Parthians, avenging Crassus, the former ally of Caesar and Pompey. But that goes wrong in a big way. And when Antony loses this, what should have given him the glory to come back to Italy, far more important, far more prestigious than Octavian, instead he fails. Whereas Octavian goes off and fights these scrappy little campaigns in the Balkans, which are nasty, not against famous opponents, but he goes out of his way to show off his personal courage and he wins. And the key thing is he wins and Antony loses. And then there's this problem... It's been a problem in the generation before with Pompey when he went out in his Eastern campaigns. Everyone wondering what happens when he returns. Is there going to be a civil war? Caesar in Gaul, what happens when he returns? Is there going to be a civil war? And in fact, there is. People are thinking in the same way about Antony. Octavian starts to exploit this. Antony does lots of really dumb things in terms of public relations for Rome, you know, promising to give most of the Eastern Empire to Cleopatra's children. And he's able to be portrayed as someone who's just gone native, gone wild, isn't a Roman anymore. So it's probably reluctant to use the word inevitable for anything historically involving human beings. You know, things don't have to happen, but it's high risk. This is probably going to happen. And then with the Civil War, Antony performs very badly. And it's partly because people are surprised at this because they expect him to be the great soldier and the great general. But again, he really doesn't know that much what he's doing. And Augustus has Agrippa, who really does know what he's doing. 
So prosecutes the campaign really ruthlessly. And once Antony at Actium, the military defeat or the naval defeat in the sea battle isn't that massive. But what damns him forever is that he runs away. Cleopatra sails off. He follows. They take the money away. But if you've lost your army, you've lost your navy, and you've lost your credit as a Roman aristocrat, Roman aristocrats don't run away. They rally the army to fight you again tomorrow or the next day or whenever they can. They don't run away. They don't admit they've lost. He's never going to come back from that. So it leads to that success. And then by this time, there are really no other serious challenges left. And when Octavian defeated Antony and Cleopatra, what plans did he have for Cleopatra, and what ended up happening to her? It's very hard to know because obviously we know that she sort of fakes her own death to get Antony to kill himself, and then oh, actually, I'll think about it for a week or two, and she tries to meet him. And you know, all these stories of clutching letters from Julius Caesar. She's trying to look pathetic, and in a sense, you have sympathy for her because she's always been a loyal ally of Rome. All the way through, it's just the Romans keep on having civil wars. So the person she's loyal to, first of all Julius Caesar, then later Mark Antony, keeps losing. And what do you do? And there is the offer there, the promise: well, I can exploit Egypt's wealth, Egypt's prosperity. It's both from trade, but also from the production of wheat for your benefit. Or if I can't do it, maybe my children can do it. In some ways, you have to wonder: was it convenient that she killed herself so she could only be carried in effigy in his triumph? On the other hand, you know she wasn't going to be killed. That's not the way the Romans work with female leaders. You know they'll they'll kill many of the men, and Caesarion is executed. But the same as Mark Antony's son, even though they're both only young. But again, she would probably would have had a comfortable retirement somewhere. But she clearly doesn't want to live with that. And hard to say. I mean, you wonder was it easier for him that she dies and then she's out of the way and not a problem. Given how much a role she's played in his propaganda against Antony, that this is the queen that's corrupted, this good, honest Roman has turned into this ridiculous eunuch who doesn't know what he's doing and is enslaved by this mysterious Eastern woman and all this sort of thing. So there's lots of powerful stereotypes for the Romans that he's brought out. But on the whole, I suspect he could have played it either way. If he'd had a captive to take back, that would have been fine. But he has a dead Cleopatra. As soon as she's dead, you have poets like Horace starting to admire her, talking about the bravery of this Egyptian queen, looking at the snake before she poisoned herself. This sort of thing. So, a dead enemy, you can start to turn into a worthy foe that you've beaten, that makes you all the greater. And of course, diminishes Antony again because if the real opponent is not this Roman general, but this. Exotic Egyptian seductress queen, then it makes him seem weaker and you seem better. And eventually, after defeating Antony and Cleopatra, once he returned to Italy, did Octavian name himself emperor, or was this title granted to him? And how was he able to go about consolidating power, especially with some of the more prominent aristocrats who maybe didn't necessarily like him? You have to remember that you know we call him emperor, but this just comes from the Roman imperator, successful general. That it's he's awarded as a permanent name rather than simply as a title for having had a victory. But all of these things and the name Augustus will be voted to him in the Senate, approved by the people, depending on the particular bit of legislation. But they've clearly been arranged. You know, later on we hear that he's supposed to have considered taking the name Romulus, and then decided, no, you know, first king of Rome, kings are dodgy, and Romulus. There's one tradition that he was torn apart by the Senate because he'd become a tyrant. Let's stick with Augustus, which has these sort of vaguely religious overtones and is new. One thing that was very much in his favour is the sheer exhaustion 
of Italy. You know, they're fed up of civil wars. They've had a couple of generations of this. And the number of people that have had their farms taken from them, you know, this is something you see very much in the poets, their sense of, of loss of, you know, family property you've had for generations has been taken to be given away to somebody's supporters. They want stability. They want to know that you're still going to own your property 10 years time, that you can give it to your children. It's not going to be stolen. They don't want their sons and themselves to be conscripted into the army to fight some general simply for power. There's no ideology really involved in the civil wars. It's all about different warlords competing for power. And the other advantages that he has that Julius Caesar didn't have is that because of these civil wars, virtually everybody important and willing to stand out in the Roman Senate is either your supporter or dead. This Senate has been purged appallingly, and it's those who stand out, those who are willing to speak out, who are willing to do something, who are most likely to get killed in the civil war. So there's sheer exhaustion, and it helps that he then lives such a long time. He gives them peace, and everybody just wants peace. They just want stability. They want the law to work again. They want the state to work again. And he tells them repeatedly, he's not emperor. He is the first man in the Senate, the first man in the state, but he's the first servant of the state. It's all about the Republic, the raised publica. I've restored the Republic. I've restored law and order. I work tirelessly for you. I do all of this, but I do it for you. And you voted me the powers to do this. And it happens in stages. And there's trial and error. You know, he's consul every year for a while. That's a bit too blatant. And it also means you can't give the job to everybody else. So they start. Uh, so it, he gradually develops this system by which the aristocrats get enough prestige, enough honor to live with the fact that deep down they know there is one man who has supreme power, who controls the army. You know, the soldiers now are taking an oath of loyalty to him and the Republic, not simply to the Republic. They get their pay from him, they get the promotion from him, they get their discharge bounty from him. It's his army that he's created, he controls, and all the major campaigns are waged by his representatives, not by somebody chosen by the Senate. So it's a gradual thing. There were times when it was probably going wrong and there are a succession of plots, but they never really get anywhere. There are, and it's 19 BC is the last time somebody outside his family holds a triumph. But nobody knew that until looking back and they suddenly realized that actually that's not happening anymore. So it's gradual, but it's also, just before Augustus dies, when he's on his last voyage down the Italian coast, a ship coming from Egypt, bringing grain, passes by. And the sailors on it, when they realize that the Emperor Augustus is on the thing, they're cheering. And it's all about the man who made the seas safe to travel. And yes, that's a little bit of sycophancy, but it's also basically true. You restore peace, you restore order after decades of chaos and slaughter. And it had been so bad that everyone is just glad to get on with their lives. And they also don't know, as we do, that after Augustus, there's going to be more Caesars, more emperors, and this is life now. But actually, it continues to work because on the whole, the good emperors you know, make people realize, actually, it's better off. You're better off with me. And if they treat a lot of the ancient world works because of, sort of what they would see as respecting each other's honor, treating people in a way that makes them feel that they're not humiliated, therefore they can put up with the fact that actually you have power and they don't. So it's a very gradual process. And to kind of get into different aspects of his rule, the begin was Roman religion a big part of his life? Yes, in the sense of religion is everywhere in Roman life. And every politician is a priest as well. You know, Caesar is Pontifex Maximus, Augustus will become Pontifex Maximus. 
every ceremony begins with ritual, with sacrifice, with taking the auguries. It's always very hard to know what the Romans actually believed and to what extent there was an emotional element in this. You know, Julius Caesar seems terribly cavalier. Yes, he's the supreme priest of Rome, but he doesn't seem that bothered by any rule or regulation and does what he likes. But you had to show respect. It was all about public respect. And perhaps there were, I mean, for somebody like Augustus, given all the success he's had, he probably is going to end up believing he's special. People who are successful, usually it's the natural human instinct to believe that, well, I deserve this. In the same way that people who fail in things tend to want to believe that it's somebody else's fault. It's, it's just, this is how we're wired in. So it's there, it's important. And the other thing, one of the many things he's doing, he's restoring the Republic. He's also restoring the proper relationship with the gods. So you know, he stresses how many temples he builds, he repairs on a grand scale. So it's physical renewal, it's spiritual renewal with a revival of some very ancient cults. You know, he holds the secular games and has Horace write this great hymn to be sung. And it, it's, he probably has to fiddle the calendar to do this. And there are elements where you're reviving cults in a form that they probably never actually had in the past. So it's trying to reassure people. Again, a lot of people who bring in radical change cloak it very effectively with the idea of tradition, the sense that actually this isn't change, this is renewal. This is how we used to be in the good old days. And that makes it easier for people to deal with this. And then it becomes the habit and the tradition. So it's vitally important. It's absolutely everywhere. But it is, and it's very hard for us coming from monotheistic traditions to quite get into the Roman mindset of this great pantheon of different gods and goddesses who do different things and understand just what did it mean to people. But clearly to some, it means a lot. To others, probably all the variation in attitude you get today. But certainly publicly, he shows great respect for the gods. And there is the emphasis on him. He is only deified after he's died. You know, He doesn't want to become a god while he's alive, which sort of thing Hellenistic kings and queens Cleopatra had been goddess and all this sort of thing. You're not doing that. You're not doing what evil, tyrannical monarchs do. You're just being properly respectful to the traditional gods of Rome. And did Augustus have a family? And if so, how important was this in his life and kind of what role did it play? Family is vital as it is for for Roman aristocrats. You know, it's a family-based system where the name is so important. And that's why the big Republican families, they constantly advertise. That's why a funeral of an aristocrat is a public affair where you celebrate the achievements of all the past generations and then promise for the future, you know, this is what the next lot are going to do. Now he has to, Caesar had been starting to restore the fortunes of his branch of the Julii Caesares, his family, because they hadn't been prominent for quite a long time. And Augustus takes this further and takes it an extra stage. And he also uses his family a lot. As I mentioned, soon all the important commands come to be held by a family member, even if it's a distant family member by marriage. But the big ones are held by Agrippa. Then there are Augustus's grandchildren, Gaius and Lucius, the children of his daughter, Julia, married to his old friend, Agrippa, who's obviously literally old enough to be her father. Later on, his stepchildren, Tiberius and Drusus, One interesting thing, you also get the women of the imperial family and the children of the imperial family get more and more of a role. So his sister Octavia is prominent for quite a while. Livia, Augustus's wife, gets to do, sometimes there'll be a ceremony where he will give a banquet for the men of Rome and the women, or they will give a banquet for the women of Rome, or they will take part in 
particular ritual. So you look at monuments like the Arapakis, Augusti, where the whole family is there, you know, women and children celebrating the peace that Augustus has brought back to the empire. So they're important. One interesting thing is that Livia and Augustus never have a child that lives. There's one account that suggests that Livia has, gets pregnant but has a miscarriage and loses the child, but he doesn't divorce her. And people like Caesar and Pompey had four or five wives and basically, you know, kept moving along because they wanted children. Divorce was very easy for Roman aristocrats. So it does speak of probably a deep emotional bond. People always are inclined to say, oh, well, you know, she comes from the old aristocracy and she's well connected. Well, yes, she is. But so were plenty of others. He could have found a replacement and her family weren't so important that divorcing her would have done that. So keeping this woman who clearly assists him in what he does, most of it informally, most of it behind the scenes, but sometimes there as well, and accompanies him on his journeys. So Augustus spends more than half his reign away from Italy and away from Rome on the frontiers, not always campaigning directly, but overseeing things. Nearly all the time, Livia goes with him, and this becomes the pattern for his family. The wives and children go with them, so hence the Emperor Claudius is born in Gaul, in Lyon. Now, this is not something that Roman aristocrats have done before, Roman governors have done before. So, you know, whereas, in a sense, because of the New Testament, we've got this sort of idea of Pontius Pilate's there and his wife appears, oh, I've had this dream, and we assume a Roman governor's going to have his wife there, that only starts with Augustus and his family. It's really, it's a big break with tradition. It's why Julius Caesar doesn't see Calpurnia for 10 years while he's in Gaul, because the wives didn't go and visit, even there where he's only really in northern Italy each winter. But it is not the practice. So the family is not just paraded in Italy, but it goes around the provinces as well. Lots of people see Augustus and his family, and they are celebrated. The problem is, is that the mortality rate amongst them is staggeringly high, even by ancient standards. And succession of young men who seem to be marked out as likely heirs or co-rulers, they die. Augustus, the one who's been unhealthy for so much of his life, keeps plodding on into his 70s. And all these other people die in of illness, of accident. If you read the Robert Graves, the I, Claudia stuff, they're all murdered by Livia. But whilst that is theoretically possible, probably this is it's just chance. But it does mean that a succession of quite young Caesars die. And the switch gears a little bit. As ruler, did Augustus go on extensive military campaigns or did he kind of continue to rely on confidants or relatives to wage war? If he did, uh, where did he kind of wage these campaigns? The last time he really sees sort of active service in the field is Spain in the early teens BC. After that, he will go to the theater of operations, but he'll stay a little bit back. So he will see the army, but then Agrippa or Tiberius or Drusus or Gaius or Lucius or Germanicus later will go and actually lead them in battle. But as I say, we tend to think of Roman emperors sitting there in Rome or sitting there in Italy and people coming to them with their problems. But that's the style adopted by Tiberius, his successor. Augustus travels. And until you get the Emperor Hadrian, who travels a lot as well, Augustus is the greatest traveler. And he's working almost as later emperors like Diocletian will. There's a team of emperors. but He's the senior one, very clearly and unchallenged, but he has a gripper. He has these assistants who do a lot for him. So it also means the empire is big so that, you know, he's in Spain, he's on the Rhineland, he's on the Danube a lot. He visits almost every province of the empire at some stage, though some of them are in the early, it's in the campaigns against Antony and things. He doesn't go to the east as much later on. But 
he travels a lot and sick, all the court, all the family, a lot of them go with him. So it's not just restoring Rome and the Republic to get that working again. He is going throughout the provinces to sort out problems. And while he's there, there's a wonderful story from the Greek geographer Strabo, who talks about passing a tiny Greek island, one of those little rocks with a minute population, which he singles out as one of the poorest places in the world. And a representative of a fishing village comes on board their ship because he's heard Augustus is at Corinth and he wants to go to Augustus to ask for their the tax they pay annually for the entire community to be reduced from, I think it's 150 denarii to 100. Now, you know, that's less than the pay of one Roman legionary for a year. There's a document leasing a, a cow in Egypt from almost the same period where the cow is valued at more than the... So these people are dirt poor. But he believes he can go to where Augustus is and he can wait and he can queue and eventually he'll get to see Augustus and Augustus will listen to their problem, listen to their petition and do something about it. So he's incredibly active throughout his life, right the way to the last days, whether in Rome, wherever he is, listening to people, listening to petitions, listening to embassies and giving judgments, whether the judgment is, you can sort that out locally, this is the authority that will do it or this is what you're going to do. But again, after these decades of chaos and upheaval, it's all about getting communities to work again, getting the law to work again. And you get rulings enforcing the, the proper, what they consider to be the proper interpretation of the law on very minor affairs, but they've got to Augustus. And it might take years, but eventually he or someone he's appointed has said, no, this is what you should do. This is right, this is important, this is wrong, this has to be put right. So he's a very busy, very active emperor. And did Augustus undertake different reforms for the Roman military? Do we see kind of a change in the way the Roman military is used in this period under his rule? It becomes much more permanent in that he establishes a set number of legions, that's 28, though it'll fluctuate by a few, but only by a few for the next 200 years. And whereas people like Caesar had raised legions for their campaigns and then disbanded them at the end, he establishes much longer terms of service, much more formal terms of service for legionaries, but also for foreign soldiers as well. Everything becomes more permanent. There's, again, we only really see the shadow of it, but regulations of equipment, of drill, of training, all of these things. And it starts to be the Roman army that we recognize very easily archaeologically, that we think of as the sort of classic Roman legions and the Roman soldiers. It also becomes visible and it builds camps that look more standardized. It's not instant, but it moves that way to the point where you can look and you can almost guess, right, okay, it's that shape. This is where that part's going to be. This is where that building's going to be. And starts to turn into what will be the permanent forts of the imperial period. It's still very mobile in his reign. And the settled frontiers that develop later are only really at the very start. But mostly, probably what he's doing is codifying sort of best practice you've already got and then trying to get everybody to do it, rather than each legion having its own form of drill and doing what it wants. And there is, you know, the clear impression you get from Caesar's accounts of the Civil War is that legions from different parts of the empire in his day could be very different because they'd adapted to the local situation. It's much more standardised under Augustus. And one of the things this does is to increase and regularise the career pattern for local aristocrats, the minor gentry, not just in Italy, but throughout the empire, you go through the army, you serve the state. He starts to give jobs to people from a lower social level, the equestrian order, not just the Senate, 
in provincial administration. And they can have a clear pattern of army posts they can hold, then they can become a governor of a minor province or procurator or prefect, these sorts of things. So it's part of a general reshaping of society. And it is most of what he does. It'll be adapted a little bit, but he basically lays the basis for the Roman army for the next few hundred years. But again, we only glimpse it. And he also sets up the tax that will pay for it to afford this and to afford the salaries of these men. So it's the infrastructure as well as the military itself. And generally, what was his kind of strategy or approach to trying to conquer new land or make new provinces? Augustus parades the fact that he's brought peace back to the Roman Empire. And you know, mentioned before the Arapacis Augusti, the altar of peace of the divine Aug- of Augustus, and it comes to find later. And he talks about closing the doors of the Temple of Janus a couple of times in his reign, which was only done when the Roman people were at peace everywhere in the world. But actually, if you read his Reis Gesta, his account of his deeds, it's a long catalogue of, I conquered this people, I subdued this people. He does conquer a lot. So it's peace between Romans and then restoring the might, the majesty and the glory of the Roman Empire. He completes the conquest of the Spanish Peninsula, which had been ongoing for centuries, but there were large areas in the north and the west that were still pretty independent, pretty warlike. And there are major campaigns there. He pushes the frontier up to the River Danube in the Balkans. So again, pretty grim, gritty campaigns in tough country against difficult opposition. He doesn't go to Britain, even though the poets talk about this. He pushes beyond the Rhine to the River Elbe, uh, creates this big province of Germany. Most of the expansion is in Europe and to some extent around the fringes of Africa and the Middle East. What he doesn't do is fight a major war with the Parthians. And instead, he gets the Parthians to return the eagles, the standards that they'd lost and the prisoners that had been taken when Crassus was defeated in 53 BC and then Mark Antony defeated in 36 BC, restores Rome's honor and makes great play of it. You have the Temple of Mars, the Avenger, Mars Altor, built on the edge of Augustus Forum. You can still see it there today. The standards are brought back. They're put in there. But this is achieved sort of militant diplomacy. He basically comes to the Parthians, talks to them, but says, if you don't give me this, then this army can be unleashed. Now, that's fine as far as the Romans are concerned. You don't have to fight someone. As long as they submit and admit you're stronger, then that's just as good as fighting them and defeating them in war. So he's quite canny in where he chooses to fight. Major war against the Parthians is a lot more dangerous than the wars in Europe where you might suffer defeats, but they're probably not going to be on the same scale. You can probably recover. On the other hand, it takes longer to fight the more disparate tribal peoples of Europe because you've got to beat each group in turn. You're not fighting one great king, one great army. And to kind of finish up on kind of the military side of things, did the Battle of the Tudorberg Forest make Augustus kind of realize that Rome was starting to kind of reach the limit of its expansion? Or do you think the way historians think about that battle and is kind of overblown? It's a major defeat. I mean, it's the biggest defeat he suffers. There have been problems in Illyria in AD 6 that had caused overstretch, that had caused him to recruit former slaves, to free slaves, put them in the army because he was just short of, of manpower. And then to lose three legions and this humiliating defeat just a few years later. You've got to remember he's elderly by this time. He's only got five more years to live. When he dies, he leaves advice for Tiberius' successor to keep the empire within its bounds that is now it's very hard to know whether that's okay we've got all the best bits of the world which is what 
some people like Strabo and other writers are saying at this time, it's not worth conquering anymore. It's just a load of barbarians. They don't have any money. They're awkward. They'll be difficult. We'll have to have loads of soldiers there to suppress them and we won't get any revenue. And it's just not worth having. And the same is said about Britain. It's better just to trade with them. There's no point conquering them. They're not worth it. Is there that sense coming in? Or is he simply saying we need a period of consolidation of recovery? And then when we're stronger, well, see what we're going to do then. We don't know. It's convenient for Tiberius, who, when he becomes emperor, is very old by this time and has as much glory as he's ever going to need. You know, he's won these campaigns. He doesn't need to go to war and he doesn't want to. He clearly doesn't enjoy being emperor and will. The burden of the job is rather a lot and he ends up retreating to Capri and this sort of thing and avoiding as much public business as he can. He certainly doesn't want to go off and fight wars somewhere. So it's very hard to tell. It's somewhere in between. Again, we know what happened and we know that the empire isn't going to expand that much more after this. Every now and again, they'll take Britain, Trajan will take Dacia, you know, there'll be campaigns in the east, there'll be bits here and there, there'll be allied and client kingdoms that are turned into provinces. But on the whole, the main body of the empire has already been conquered. But very hard to say. I mean, Again, it, it's clearly a big shattering event and they never quite go back. Tiberius doesn't have the energy, won't keep the war going long enough and put the resources in to reconquer the lost territory in Germany. But on the other hand, over 100 years later, Tacitus writes in the Germania about the sort of, and our struggle with Germany, with the Germans is ongoing, victory has not yet been achieved. But there's this sort of sense that, well, one day we'll get around to this. And did... Augustus kind of construct any famous monuments or buildings in Rome that still stand today. Did he kind of play a role in kind of building sort of the ancient Rome that we kind of associate with today? His classic boast is that he found Rome made of brick and left it made of marble. And when you go to Rome now, you'll see a lot of that really hard fired brick, red, deep sort of red brown color that's actually later. It comes from later in the imperial period and it lasts forever. He's talking about mud brick that he found before, and he does remodel everything on a big scale. Some of it you can see, like the Arapakis, you can still see its relief, so that's been tidied up a lot and fiddled with over the centuries. His mausoleum, his vast tomb, is now stripped of all its marble, all the things that were on top. So some things, it's just a big lump of concrete now. There are some things you can't see, but he does lay down very much the shape of Imperial Rome. You can see parts of his forum. You can see the steps that leading up to the Temple of Mars Altor. You don't see all the rows of statues of the generals who've triumphed in the past, all culminating in him. But he basically, everywhere you looked in the center of Rome by the end of Augustus's life, you would see a monument that he'd either built, repaired, or something associated with him, or his family had done. I mean, one of the most spectacular is the Pantheon built by Agrippa, where you've still got that huge inscription recording this. Now, that was restored by Hadrian slightly over 100 years later. It's not entirely clear. There's debate over to what extent Hadrian remodeled it. I mean, it is remarkable today. You go into this building and there's still this Roman roof towering above you. But the change was dramatic. And in one sort of sense, you can think of, well, this showed everybody, wow, what a magnificent city we're living in. Yes, we've got peace, we've got prosperity, everything's wonderful. The other thing that's worth thinking about is all the jobs that created. People had to build these monuments. People had to supply the materials for these monuments. And some of it's coming from all over the empire, but a lot of it is being made. So the urban poor and the unemployed who'd been a source of willing to back anyone who'd give them food, they've been willing to write, they've been politically involved. You can help use part of bringing them under control is, A, you send some of them off to colonies and you give them a farm and actually give them a 
livelihood, but also you're giving them work, you're giving them employment. So it's one of the reasons it's constantly doing these things. Agrippa sorts out the sewage system, the water supply of Rome. You're doing all these grand practical things as well as the more spectacular, but you tend to combine the two. So you build these aqueducts and these great big arches towering above you to remind everybody you're getting fresh water because Augustus has done this for you. So it's a huge transformation. It's a very expensive transformation, but it, it's sort of injecting money into the economy and giving people this pride and this sense of living in somewhere that, that's truly staggering. But he, the whole city is remodeled, and that's reflected in a different scale elsewhere throughout the empire and in the road system and in the bridges and the same. So it, it's huge. And as Augustus got older, how did he kind of go about grooming a successor to eventually kind of take over? In one sense, because he, the powers he has are all voted to him personally and all awarded to him personally. There isn't a job of what we would call emperor in a, a clear way. However, he shows marked favor to family members like his nephew Marcellus early on. He dies young. Agrippa marries his daughter. He starts to be given. People get lesser versions of the powers Augustus holds. So imperium, power to command in large parts of the empire, tribunition potestas, the powers of a tribune of the people. They get voted them on a temporary basis. They share office with him, and that's how they're marked out. A succession of people have this, but then die before he does. And finally, Tiberius, his stepson, is in the position at the end where it's obvious he's going to be the successor because he's the only one left who still holds all this. But there's also his nephew, Augustus' grandson, Germanicus, who's supposed to be his co-ruler. In the same way Augustus has used all these family members to help him run the empire, the thinking clearly seems to be that Tiberius will use his own son, Drusus, and his nephew, Germanicus, to do this. But in fact, both will die under slightly suspicious circumstances fairly soon after them. No emperor after Augustus has quite so many capable family members he can trust. But again, it's been a troubled period when you think this is somebody who had to exile both his daughter, Julia, and his her daughter, the other Julia, his granddaughter, for supposedly gross immorality and political intrigue and all sorts of things. So you've presented this family as the paragon of what Roman families, Roman virtue should look like, and yet they'd let you down on occasion. So it's mixed, but the Tiberius is the one at the time when Augustus does actually die, who is clearly marked out. And whilst there's a little bit of confusion, it's not quite as neat a succession as it's become by the time this has happened a few times when everybody knows, right, we're going to have an emperor. There is a brief question of, well, shall we just go back to how it used to be with elected consuls and they run everything? Before I think people realize that, that just isn't practical anymore. You, no one, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Once you've had an emperor who's controlled the army, you need somebody to do that. Otherwise, there's just going to be, everybody's going to try and take that position by force. So you need someone who's strong enough to keep the peace. And how did Augustus die? And what was kind of the reaction around the city of Rome and around the different provinces? It is staggering. I mean, again, he's so old and he's been around for so long that there aren't that many people left who can remember a time before him. And the odds are the only thing they can remember from the time before him is how chaotic it was and how dreadful things were. And he's also, Augustus is everywhere. You know, Augustus's head is on the coins. His image is everywhere. There are more images of Augustus than anybody else from the ancient world, you know, anybody human. So whilst this has been the image of this still very youthful, dynamic, heroic-looking figure, it's not the little old man in his 70s with bad teeth and built up heels on his sandals. 
not so many people may necessarily have seen the reality, but they've had this image of this ageless hero, the man who gives you peace, the man who makes Rome great again, the man who does all these things. It's a shock. There's mutinies in the armies on the Rhine because the soldiers don't know what's going to happen next. And they've gusts his men for a long time and various other difficulties. But it's calmed down, it's coped with fairly quickly. And then the transition, you have a new Caesar and somebody else's head on the coins, though it's a long time before they've minted so much under Augustus that for a long time, his coins are in circulation and are very, very common. So it's, yes, people are going through the motions. This is, in the end, he's a military dictator. You know, he controls the army. You have to say you like him. Otherwise, things are likely to be difficult for you. But he's done it with such tact that it's very hard to tell to what extent all the public mourning, the great ceremony of his body being taken to Rome, the funeral, how much of this is genuine emotion? I think quite a lot probably is. He is the familiar thing, you know, he has been there so long. And how much is, well, this is what you've got to do, because you don't want want people to be asking questions. But it's clearly a major transition. But because he's lived so long, the system he's created is pretty secure by this time. And to ask some concluding questions, do you think Augustus laid the groundwork for a later period that would be known as the Pax Romana? You certainly, you look at the first century BC and you've had so much political violence leading into civil war, you know, very few prominent men in the first century BC in Rome die a natural death. They're nearly all killed or commit suicide. That changes and it becomes dangerous to be around the emperor and be in Rome, but in general, the provinces are secure, they're peaceful. Yes, there's banditry, yes, there's problems, there's, but things are far more under control than they had been before. There is that stability. There will be that prosperity. You know, Most of the great monuments that we see now of Roman cities throughout the empire, they're built in the first, second centuries AD. Even when they looked at levels of pollution shown in the polar ice caps, they're at their highest level. There's more industry in this time. And it has a lot to do with that stability. If Augustus had died of any of the ailments he'd had early on, within a few years, you could easily have gone back to civil war. You know, he didn't have an obvious heir who was capable early on. And people weren't, the whole system hadn't bedded in to the point where it was natural. Yes, we have an emperor. Yes, we have a princeps who rules. So he does a lot to do that. And it's hard to tell. I suspect more and more evidence will accumulate for a increases in population as well as prosperity. The prosperity is clearly there. The trade is on a a greater scale than it has been before. And you can even look, you come at the end of the first century AD to the beginning of the second to a fort like Vindolanda on Hadrian's Wall. And in terms of the goods there and the things people are talking about, it is clearly plugged into the economy of the entire empire, even though it's right on the fringes. It's like being somewhere out west in the 1870s. It might take a while to get to you, but it does get to you. So that system owes an awful lot to Augustus, but it will be changed and refined by his successors. And my final question is, overall, what do you think his kind of Augustus legacy is, both as a leader, a ruler, and for ancient Rome? In some ways, he almost makes even Caesar be more important. You know, if, if Augustus hadn't come along, then Caesar, the family name, wouldn't have become this name of power that meant we had a Kaiser in Germany and a Tsar in Russia at the beginning of the 20th century, that people like Napoleon like using Roman iconography to show their victory, their achievements. Caesar might have been just another one like Pompey, like Sulla, like Marius, who'd flourished, done all these things, but then died and nothing happened as a result. There wasn't a legacy. So he almost adds to that 
legacy and the fact that then every emperor is going to take the name Caesar, this sense. And the system he created in so many respects will endure for centuries. He clearly, and the Greco-Roman culture that develops under this empire will have such profound influence on Western culture. So he does matter. This is someone who did shape his world and through that shape our world for a long time. But he's also quite enigmatic. And this is someone you feel was always presenting an image, was always acting, always performing, changes his sort of from being the young butcher in his, his early years, the man who fights his way to power, murders his way to power, is seen as a lot nastier than people like Antony because he's so young, he shouldn't have so many enemies. To become the father of his country, all of this sort of thing, and become this, this revered figure. It's claimed that amongst his last words are this sort of actor's tag, applaud if I've played my part well, you know, what someone would say when they're leaving the stage or taking their bow. There is an element where, for all the violence of his rise to power, this is someone who used his power very responsibly, who felt that he was doing the right thing. That doesn't necessarily mean he was, or that everybody would agree with his reasoning. But as military dictators go, and that's what he was, he was a pretty good one. Now, you don't want a military dictator at all, but if you've got to have one, someone like this is probably a better option. But like Julius Caesar himself, the career of Augustus these people can only emerge when a political system has gone badly wrong and is really failing. So again, it's all about the whole collapse of the Republic. With hindsight, you look at it and think this is, it's so unnecessary, but that's what people did. So when you write a biography of someone, you end up developing strong feelings one way or the other about them. Caesar has charm. It's hard not to like him, though also be slightly unnerved by his talent for things and his ruthlessness. Augustus, again, you rather like, but also you see this very hard, quite sinister figure as well. So they are odd mixtures, and you really just come away with the conclusion that you hope you don't live in times that produce men like that in the of the front, because it, however good they are, it means things have been pretty bad to get there. So we just had that interview with Dr. Goldsworthy. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. I enjoyed how he was able to kind of layer a lot of the context to the way Augustus often acted, sort of the way that Rome kind of functioned and the way that Octavian sort of navigated his way through that system. And it's always interesting to hear about sort of the dramatic parts of ancient Rome. I think this period is sort of unique because it's sort of the bridge between the Republic and sort of the empire. I mean, empire is sort of a term that gets thrown on the Rome. I think a lot of people didn't really at that time didn't necessarily see themselves as an empire. It was really more of like Rome and then all the outlying provinces. So the word empire and the word emperor, which I think is interesting, it gets thrown around a lot, but it wasn't really the way that people who ruled Rome were sort of perceived and weren't really looked at. So I think it's interesting. There's a lot of drama in the way that it's almost Game of Thrones-esque in a lot of ways. You have assassinations, you have incest, you have civil war, you have all these sort of things that happen in history. And yet people look at Game of Thrones and like, I think Age of Rome in some ways is sort of you can bit that history is there. I know it's not the exact history, but I think if you look at ancient Rome and the way that the politics functioned with a very sort of everyone for themselves type mentality, especially at this time, sort of unique. And the way Augustus or Octavian at a very young age was sort of able to navigate that and sort of manage that was really impressive. And he is the sort of longest ruling uh, 
dictators. Dr. Goldsworthy talked about him in Roman history. And as he constantly mentioned, was this stabilizing force that was able to kind of bring peace. It brought economic prosperity. The empire grew in population. They were able to kind of consolidate their borders and prevent outside interventions. So again, it was the start of this Pax Romana, this sort of Roman peace where internal strife that we often sort of associated before the ascension of Augustus and later during like the second, third century AD when there was constant civil war. Again, it was this period and Augustus laid the groundwork for that. So again, I always enjoy going back to ancient Rome because it's, again, as he mentioned, you have to navigate the challenges of sourcing, but the way he often writes sort of lays out the interpretation of these sources. So I'd recommend any of the number of books he's written, again, about Caesar, about Augustus. He's written about different Roman generals. He's written about the Roman military. He's written about the Roman economy. So um, I would recommend really any of the books. And he's written about such a wide variety of stuff in ancient Rome that I'm sure you'd find something interesting, whether you're interested in culture or religion or economics or you know military. I can guess that he's probably written about it, especially in ancient Rome. There are a lot of parallels between the way that the government functioned and a lot of those sort of governing principles that we see in a lot of Western governments today with institutions in place that were designed to make sure that a single party couldn't hold power. Obviously, that didn't necessarily last. But I think the way he framed it, that the Roman Republic was in this constant turmoil where the system just wasn't functioning. So a new system had to come and take its place. If today, for example, if it's a military dictator that wouldn't necessarily be bad, or that would be bad, <laughs> not necessarily bad, but the way Augustus navigated it by bringing economic prosperity and peace, people were generally okay with it. Even though you couldn't badmouth him or whatnot, people were generally fine with it because there was peace after years and years of war and chaos. So, and maybe to draw parallels today, I certainly hope not, but with the US, for example, I think its political system it's starting to reach this inflection point where you almost have to wonder if there's going to have to be some sort of change, drastic change in order to make the government function. Because I think the polarization and sort of just the dysfunction in government right now, the economy and society just stops functioning at some point when the government can't actually govern. And we see ancient Rome, Augustus emerges out of that and manages it very well. Right now you have Donald Trump, but I hope he's not the guy to sort of do that. But again, you wonder out of this sort of political chaos, that sort of person could emerge to manage all of that. Again, it's sort of this weird sort of relationship that authoritarianism and democracy and different government systems have within societies. When things are great and the economy is good and there's a war, people are perfectly okay with democracy. But when it's bad, people look to those sort of strongmen type leaders to manage that sort of chaos. And then when people sort of become fed up with that sort of strongmen not being able to freely express themselves, all that, they throw out. So it's kind of this weird cycle that we see. People sort of look at, try and find, the, like they look at the French Revolution, for example, this sort of idea that the first time that this monarch was into sort of a hyper dictatorship under Napoleon. But again, I think ancient Rome offers a lot of concrete examples to some of the societal changes that go on as a result of political turmoil and how different leaders navigate that. Again, after reading Augustus' biography, as Dr. Goldsworthy, I generally like Augustus. 
I think he was a charismatic leader and a good manager. I think he understood the limits of his authority and was a good team player. I think he was able to manage his team really well, and that's what allowed Rome to thrive. But again, he was a very ruthless leader in the way that he approached rivals, the way he approached enemies, both domestically and outside Rome's borders. So again, all of that I think is sort of unique and interesting about ancient Rome. So again, I would recommend any of his work, Dr. Goldworthy's work. It's fantastic. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope you learned a little bit more about Augustus and about ancient Rome and the system that dominated that era. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. I would recommend that you keep listening to any other topics that we do. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end, and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.